If you have a Bible, open to the book of 2 Samuel. If you're not sure where 2 Samuel is, it's in the Old Testament, which means the first half of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one on the table there for you. Um, if, if you've got a smartphone, there's also an app called YouVersion. It's a really easy way to take the Bible with you everywhere, and it's easy to find books of the Bible there. Um, if, if, if you take the Bible on the table, you're like, okay, where's 2 Samuel? There's a table of contents in the front of the Bible, just like any other book. Uh, and you just look for where it says the number two and then Samuel. Uh, And we're in 2 Samuel and in chapter 11. We're in a series called After My Own Heart, and it's based on this guy in the scriptures, this guy named David. And the reason that the series is called After My Own Heart, because God said something pretty particular and special over David. He said, he is a man after my own heart. So God and David have a a really unique, extremely close relationship. in spite of, and, and it's not just because David was like an all-star. Uh, in fact, tonight we're going to see something about David um, that, that I, I think in many ways is very polarizing, but in a lot of ways also kind of hu- humanizes him too. Because up to this point, we, we've, we have seen a lot of things about David that we really love, right? So when we first meet um, David, you know, he he's, has this deep devotion and this adoration to God. Um, he has this time of dependence on God, even in times of trouble and, and suffering. Um, there, he has, he's really free in just his worship. Um, he has the ability to extend mercy to his enemies. We've seen that in David's story already. Um, but tonight we, we, we see something um, that is ultimately going to lead to good news, but it, it comes out of something that's tragic. And that really is the very nature of, of the gospel or this good news, this all, what we just sang about, what, what you're going to hear about all tonight. What is that really the core of what we believe about Jesus, this gospel, this good news about who he is and what he's done, what he promises to complete. That out of something tragic, which is sin and rebellion, and we see just the effects of that all over our world, and we see it in our own lives as well, but there's something that's good. There's life that comes out of, this, out of, out of death. Um, and so if you're here tonight and you just happen to be someone who you feel Feel like you're under guilt or shame or embarrassment or regret. Tonight is a great night for you to be here because the good news is that you can leave tonight feeling completely free. That's the message that you're going to hear tonight. So tonight, David, as we pick up in our text, we find him in a kind of a more weathered position than we've seen him in the past. Again, when we first found David, he was this kind of singer-songwriter, shepherd, teenage boy, just writing songs uh, to God, out keeping his sheep. And then David has this incredible moment with uh, an enemy named Goliath, and God gives him a victory over him. And then uh, there, David, we see David just kind of, his path kind of takes these weird twists and turns, and uh, sometimes he's running for his life, and other times he's kind of really free and radical in his, in his worship. And we see kind of all these things. But in all of those things, what, there's something that's been very constant in David's life is that he always is moving towards God. So in times of victory and in times of waiting, in times of desperation, in times of wonder, like what's going on, God? Where are you? Is this my life? Is this going to be? David's always kind of making this move towards God. Um, and, and David's had life happen to him. It's not just like everything has been easy for David. David's lost people that he's loved. He, he's had major setbacks. He's had major suffering and persecution. But yet David's kind of stance towards God has always been relentless. But we're going to see kind of a different version of different side of David that we really haven't seen before in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Before we read this, let me, let me pray 
And I'm going to ask God if he would help us uh, to hear from him, from his text um, tonight. So let's, let's just pray together and really just ask God to meet with us. Um, Father, I thank you for just how good you are. And um, God, we, we sang it as a, as a song, God, that, that we serve a king with good intentions. And God, I believe that. I know that. And God, I, there's people in the room who they, they'll sing that lyric, but yet, God, there's things in their life that makes them feel like it's not true. And so, God, I pray tonight that through, through what we see in David's life and, God, what you speak to us by your spirit, God, that we would leave here knowing that, yes, you are a good king. God, in, even in the midst of our own suffering, and God, sometimes it's suffering and hardship that we've caused ourselves. God, because of our own sin, our own rebellion, our own unhealthy or unwise decisions. But God, will we see that you're still good and you're still, you're still coming after us, even in the midst of that. Um, Father, we did not come here to hear from me. God, we came here to hear from you. So, God, I'm asking that we would. I'm God asking that you would speak. So would you remove distractions? Holy Spirit, would you, would you come? Would you control me? Would you fill me? God, I pray for an anointing. God, I pray for the, the gift of preaching even now. Um, God, I pray for a clarity in speech. God, I pray for just clarity in thought. God, I pray for clarity in our hearing. Um, and God, I, I pray for conviction. Um, and God, I pray that we would know your kindness, God, tonight. And... Um, God, I, most of all, I just want to make much of you. So, Jesus, uh, I love you. And, God, I just pray you help me to do that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to kind of work through real quickly the story that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm not going to read through all the verses, but I wanted you to go there so you know where the story is. So you, on your own, and hopefully you're doing that as we're working through David's story, that you're, that you're kind of been reading through this and you're, and you're seeing just the drama that is David's um, life. So in, in verse 1, I will read this. And, and it's in the spring at the time when the king goes off to war. The kings go off to war. So in the spring, it's when the weather is right for war, okay? And um, David sent Joab... Out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So that's key. So David's not really where he's supposed to be. And this is a, not the point of this message, but it is a point for you that temptation happens when you are not where you are supposed to be. And I don't have to kind of color this in for you because you all kind of know that. There are places that you just know, whether they're real places or virtual places, uh, whether they're on the TV screen or whether it's an actual location that you go to, and sometimes maybe even their relationships. There are places and people where you know, like, that's not really where I'm supposed to be. And for you, they are places of temptation. And for you, they are places of failure. And so David, we see right off the bat, David is not where he is supposed to be. So instead, David stays home. He sends his men out to war, and they're out conquering and fighting, and David's at home. And David, one evening, he's out on the roof. And he's walking around on the roof, and he spots uh, his neighbor, and his neighbor's name is Bathsheba, and Bathsheba is out taking a bath. That's not why her name is Bathsheba, it just happens to be what's going on. So she's out there taking a bath, and David, because he's a man, uh, he notices the naked neighbor <laughs> across the way. You should read your Bible, there's crazy stuff in there. So, uh, so he notices her, and he, he says to his servants, he's like, I want that. And he says, go get her. And they said, well, just so you know, that is Uriah's wife. 
Uriah was one of David's mighty men. So David's, one of David's valiant warriors, one of his most trusted fighters that he had. And David says, I'm king. I deny myself nothing. That's who I want. And so they send for her. She comes over. David has sex with her. And then David gets um, a very interesting uh, text message from her in verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Rut row. So David sent this word to Joab. Joab, again, is his military leader. So this is David's response. This is, uh-oh. This is David's uh, response to that word from his affair. He says, send Uriah the Hittite, who is Bathsheba's husband. Okay, you guys tracking with this? And Joab sent to David. So, so send him and tell him I want to talk to Uriah. So Uriah comes in from the field, and David's like, Uriah, man, you're out there fighting for me. How are things going? And Uriah says, uh, you know, uh, the war is going. We're fighting hard out there. I probably shouldn't have come home just for you to ask me how things are going, but I'm here now. Is there anything else I can do for you? And David says, you know what, man? Um, why don't you go home and wash your feet? which is code for, why don't you go home and be with your wife? Um, and he just thinks like, okay, you know, Uriah, red-blooded male. I know what, he's been away from his wife for a long time. He's been sleeping in tents with stinky dudes. He's going to want to go home, be with his wife. I know that he, David's attempting to try to cover his tracks, cover this whole thing up. But what he doesn't count on is that Uriah is actually an honorable man. And so what Uriah does is he, verse 9, he sleeps at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants that he did not go down to his house. So the servant said, hey, Uriah, I know, you know, you brought him in from the war, you brought him in from the field. Uh, he didn't go home last night to his wife. He actually slept on your doorstep. And David's like, what in the world? What, what is with this guy? So David, um, because he understands men and he understands male urges, he's like, I know what Uriah needs. He just needs kind of a little bit of nudge. He just needs a little bit kind of encouragement. So, so what David says, hey, Uriah, man, um, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you go home to your wife? And Uriah said to David, the ark, in verse 11, the ark in Israel and Judah, they're staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David's like, those are the exact three things I wanted you to do. <laughs> I wanted you to go home, I wanted you to eat, I wanted you to get drunk, and I wanted you to make love to your wife. And, and Uriah's like, how could I do that? He's like, all, everybody else that I fight with, Everybody else, um, they're there and they're serving and they're giving their life. Which, could you imagine David? Because David is supposed to be there with them. And so Uriah says, how could I, how could I be someone, how could I be someone who, go, who goes home and does that? So David says, he's like, okay, verse 12. Stay here one more day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David, at David's invitation, verse 13, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. So David's like, I know what you need. You got to get drunk. And I know what drunk men like to do. You guys are looking at me like, this isn't real life. This is real life. This is what people do. This is what happens. Okay? So, but, verse 13, in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. So in the morning, David's like, okay, fine. I can't, 
I cannot cover my tracks like this. I got to figure out something else. So you have to kind of see the picture of sin. And I don't, again, a lot of you, you've already experienced this, where there is an initial sin, and it's bad, and you really screwed up, but you think you can still manage it. You, You think you can still control it, because not everybody knows. So if I can just make it smaller, if I can cover it up, and so then you start to get kind of creative. And, and you get creative and you get more pathological. And you, th- and, and you think, okay, like, well, I can cover it up here. I'm just going to make sure this person doesn't find out. And yes, I am going to have to make another compromise here. I'm going to have to tell another lie here. I'm going to have to go against what I believe again here. But then it'll get covered up. And so David keeps doing these things and it's not happening. So finally what he does is he writes a letter he writes a letter to Uriah's commander, Joab, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to fight against the enemy and I want you to press forward and I want you to put Uriah right on the front lines where it's the most dangerous and where it's the most violent and where he will be the most vulnerable. Now, here's the sick thing. David, man after God's own heart, actually gives this letter, he gives this instruction to Uriah Uriah's death sentence. He gives it to Uriah to carry forward to Joab the general. Uriah delivers the letter. Joab does exactly as he's told. The army presses forward, and David says, when you press forward, retreat and leave Joab alone, or leave Uriah alone. And that's exactly what happens. They press forward. Uriah's right in the front. The army backs away from him, and Uriah is killed in the field. Joab takes a messenger and he says, I need you to go to David. I need you to tell him exactly what happened. The messenger goes. David hears about it. Uriah the Hittite Hittite is dead. And David says to the messenger, look, tell Joab this is just the way that things go in war. And tell him not to be upset about this. This is just what happens in war. Bathsheba gets word that her husband has been killed. So the scripture says that she laments She's sad, she mourns for her husband, but then she goes and she lives with David, pregnant with David's, with, with David's child. Verse 12 comes, chapter 12 comes. So David, he's used to getting what he wants from his sin, right? So he thinks, okay, I've had to make some compromises. I've had to do some things that ultimately I didn't want to do, but I think I've covered my tracks, I think I've covered it up. And ultimately, I got what I wanted. I got Bathsheba. That's what I wanted. That's what I got. I had to do some things. Again, I, didn't, I know I shouldn't have done, but I got ultimately what I wanted. And that's the lie that sin tells us. Sin tells us, look, just do whatever it is that you want. Just operate in, in whatever way you want to so that you get what you want. It doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter how it hurts somebody else. It doesn't matter about the lie that you have to tell. It doesn't matter about about how expensive this is going to be for you or for anybody else. Just get what you want. That is the lie all of us believe. When you're tempted and when we fall into that temptation, when we pursue that temptation and when we sin against God, when we sin against one another. So chapter 12 comes, and I am going to read this. So the Lord sent Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. A prophet is a mouthpiece of God, someone who God would speak to them and they would speak to people. The Lord sent Nathan to David 
And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. One little baby lamb. That's all he had, this poor man. He said he raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So Nathan's painting this picture. He's telling this story. It's like you got this rich man. He's got tons of sheep, tons of cattle. He's got everything, right? He's got everything that he could ever want. But then there's this poor man. He's got one thing. He's got one little lamb. But it means the world to him. It's everything to him. It's the only lamb he has. And David burned with, and then then verse four, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So someone, a a traveler comes to the rich man and what was customary in that day is if you had out of town guests or somebody came by, you would, you'd feed them, you'd throw a feast. And so this rich man, from his abundance, he has the opportunity to take one of his many sheep or one of his many cattle or one of his many animals and prepare a feast and slaughter one of those animals for this traveler and prepare a meal for him. But instead what he does is he goes and he bullies the poor man and he takes the one lamb, the one thing that this poor man had that he loved the most. He takes that and he slaughters that. To, and so instead of coming out of his abundance, he goes out, out of another man's scarcity to create, a, to, to, to have a meal for this traveler. And then verse 5, David burned with anger against the man as, as, and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And verse, verse 7, such an important verse in the life of David. And it could be an important verse for you tonight. And I'll explain why in a second. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. That's you. I'm talking about you, David. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then the Lord, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. The, the baby that Bathsheba is pregnant with now, that baby's going to die. And as the story goes, David knows this. The son is born, he becomes ill. And David, um, he, he won't eat and he... He is in mourning and he's covered in sackcloth and ash and he won't eat. And, and day after day, he prays and he begs God to save the life of this child. The child dies. And then finally, David, he washes himself up and he'll eat. And the servants say, why is it that now you will eat 
and now you won't mourn once the child has died. But when the child was sick, you were mourning and you wouldn't eat and you were in ashcloth and sack. And David says, um, I'll, I will go to him. I, I, can't make, I can't make my son come back to me, but one day I will go to him. So in the midst of this whole story, David writes a song. Remember, he's a singer-songwriter. He writes a song, and the song is Psalm 51. So if you have, if you have a Bible, turn over to Psalm 51. Now that line in verse 7 in David's life, again, is so important, and it absolutely shatters David. And it's not a line where Nathan says, you are that man. It's not a line of accusation or condemnation. They're actually some of the most liberating words that David ever hears. And, and this is why it's so powerful, because he learns that God loves him too much to allow him to continue to conceal things. God loves David too much. God loves you and me too much to allow us to hide because hiding, and we've all had our own version of hiding and secret sins and double life and things that we hope nobody ever finds out about. We've all had that. And those moments, they might be fun for a season, maybe. But ultimately, they steal our joy. They wear us out. They, they suck up all of our energy. And God knows that. And God loves him too much to let him continue to live like that. This is, this is not the, the, the justice of God necessarily setting David straight. It's the mercy of God who loves his son too much to leave him in a place that's more miserable than he could ever understand. And, and then this, this psalm, this song, I, I think is we really, we really get another clear picture into the heart of, of David. Psalm 51, verse 1. This is what David says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So David gets right to the point, and he appeals to the mercy of God. He appeals to the mercy of God without making this long list reminding God of all the good things that he's done. And I think for some of us, when we feel like we have these moments where we want to come to God and we want to, you know, it's time to confess something, we feel like, okay, God, I, I, I'm going to confess this, but I also have to remind you about, well, you know, I, I helped out in children's ministry a few summers ago, or, you know, I, I went to summer camp as, as a kid, or, you know, like I did go to 710 once, you know, last year, or whatever. Like we just feel like we somehow have to remind God of all the good things that we've done, that like we're going to kind of sell him. But David, he doesn't do any of that. And David actually has past things like past obediences and past victories with God. He could, he could say, God, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember my faithfulness here, remember my faithfulness there. But he says, you know what? God, the only thing, the only thing I'm gonna call on right now is your mercy. He just says, Lord, have mercy on me. Look at verse two. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David says, I, I, I am not confused on what I've done or who I am. It is all over me. And I am just telling you everything that you already know about me. And I'm making it just, it's all out in the open. All the cards are out right now. I'm not hiding anything from you. And David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil 
in your sight. A huge part of repentance. And that's what's happening here with David. This, this turning from, this turning from this habitual pattern of disobedience. And that's exactly what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's a habitual pattern. It's like, I'm not, I didn't go where I was supposed to be going. In fact, now I'm here where I'm not supposed to be. I'm looking at what I'm not supposed to be looking. I'm wanting what I'm not supposed to be wanting. I'm taking what I'm not supposed to be taking. I'm sinning against someone I'm not supposed to be sinning against. And now I'm lying. And now I'm murdering. And now I'm this. And now I'm that. And, 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 and a huge part of this repentance, of turning from this, is coming to realize that you ultimately have sinned against God. All sin is ultimately against God. It's one thing for me to say to, to you or even to read it in the Psalms, but it is a huge moment when we say it to, to God ourselves, when we are open, completely open, vulnerable with God ourselves, that we say, God, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you. Had David sinned against other people? Obviously, absolutely. But David comes to these places like, I realize that, God, I've sinned against you. I have sinned against a holy, infinite creator, God. Now, this statement is actually David's greatest hope. It's his greatest hope because David has sinned against a merciful God. Sinning against God is not the worst case scenario. It's the best case scenario because the one that you've sinned against is the one who's always been set apart by his mercy. That's why David starts with, have mercy on me, because he knows God is a God of mercy. And for you, you need to know that. If there's something in your life that you're withholding, that you refuse to just open up and confess before God or before someone else, you have to know, first and foremost, God is a God of mercy, in this culture, other gods were set apart by their perceived power or their ability to destroy. But David's God, the one true God, this Yahweh, he's set apart by his great mercy. That is the God that David has sinned against, and that is David's greatest hope, that his God is a God of mercy. Look at verse 5. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. If you highlight in your Bible, that's an incredible verse to highlight. It's an incredible verse to make a consistent part of your prayer life as well. What David knows there, quite simply, is he knows that God can create something out of nothing. There's a, there's a, there's a phrase when you talk about the creation, this ex nihilo, like out of nothing. God can create something out of nothing. God, can cre- God is a creator God. And, and David is, he knows that about God. And so he's, he's relying on that. He's believing that about God. He's saying, out of this, out of this mess, out of this nothing, would you bring life? Would you create a pure heart? Verse 11, he says, I know, uh, uh, verse 11, he says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Here's something extremely important for you to know, that even at your lowest place, even at your place where you feel like, I can't believe I did that, I can't believe I'm this far gone. I, I can't believe the person I am now. I, I can't believe what I have done. I can't believe who I have hurt. I can't believe the lies I've told. Even at your lowest, God is still present there. He doesn't say, bring back your presence because God is still there. 
he, 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 says, he says, don't leave me. Don't leave me like I saw you leave Saul. The, the, the prayer is not, don't bring your Holy Spirit back because you left. It's, it's God, don't take it from me. Confession is so powerful in our lives because it is a reaffirmation of our need for God. And that's what's happening here with David. David is rehearsing and reaffirming to himself before God, I need you. Don't go. I need you. It's not come back because I know you've left me because you should leave me. You should leave me. David knows you haven't left me, but he says, don't leave me. I need you. Confession is a reaffirmation of how much I need you, God. Verse 12. He says, if I, uh, um, man, I'm, the word is too small. Restore. <laughs> Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. He says, you do not, verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What David realizes about God is that God is not pleased with our elaborate gestures uh, or, or us trying to make a deal with him to prove how sorry we are. He, he, he says, I, I know you don't delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You don't take pleasure in the burnt offerings. But verse 17, he says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He says, I know that you will not despise. David says, if I try to come at you right now with, with you know, a burnt goat or a, or, or a burnt cow or a bull, if I, if I try to come at you right now with some kind of religious kind of activity, that's not what you want. David says, I know you enough, God, to know what it is that you really want. You want my brokenness. You, you want just how messed up this is. This is great news for us. It's great news because God doesn't need you to do anything to convince him of how sorry you are. Because everyone else, everyone else, when they sin, they would assume, okay, I got to unlock the code. I got to bring just the right Levitical sacrifice according to, to, the, to, the, to the law. But what David knew, he's like, look, my sin is so bad that there are not enough animals that I can roast to cover this up. He knew, look, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take way more than that. And two, he, David had a sense, this sacrificial system is pointing to something that's bigger. This is not ultimately what God had in store for his people. But that's kind of our instinct with God, isn't it? Like we blow it bad, like we always do. And then we get into like bargain mode with God. We say, okay, God, I did this. And uh, so to kind of cover that up, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this, or I'm going to, I'm going to give up this relationship. Uh, I'll give up this dream job. I'll give up, uh, you know, going to this school or I'll, I'll give up, you know, my car, whatever. We just have a thing like, God, if you, just, if you just forgive me, I promise that I'll never blank again. I'll never go with them. I'll never be with them. I'll never do that. I'll never say that. I'll never think that, right? And then we do of course, and God knows that we're going to, um, and we never hold up our end of the, of the bargain. 
And when we do this, we don't treat God like the God of the Bible. We, we start to treat God like he's this kind of tribal, superstitious God. Like we somehow have to make some kind of sacrifice to, to appease him. But, 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 but the God of the Bible is the one who delights in actually giving good gifts to his kids. He's the one who says, when you're hungry and you ask for bread, I'm not going to give you a stone. If you ask for a fish, I'm not going to give you a snake. That's the God of the Bible. That's our Heavenly Father. The Father who actually likes to give his kids good gifts. But when, we're in sin, when, we, when we sin, we're inclined to bargain with God and to offer him things that ultimately he's not interested in. We have this long list of things that we're going to give up. And what we need to learn is we need to stop bartering with God about things that he would give us for free, about things that he wants to give us. Because what David knows is David knows the heart of the Father well enough to know that he's not looking for sacrifice. Because if he wanted it, he said, I'd give it to you, but I know you well enough to know that's not what you're looking for. And so what David offers up and what God wants from us is the sacrifice of a, of a, of a broken heart, a broken spirit, And what he offers God, what David offers God is broken and fractured and in pieces. But he says, look, it's a mess, but it's, it's everything that I have and all these pieces, everything that's shattered, everything that's wrecked, everything that is absolute mess. He's like, I'm giving all of that to you. I'm not holding anything back. It's blemished. It's broken. It's crushed. It's yours. And David says, if I thought that there was a sacrifice that you'd want, I'd offer it. But the only thing I can give you right now is my broken heart and my contrite spirit. A lot of times people, one of their critiques of Christianity is that they'll say, well, man, you're, you're a Christian or that Christianity is just, a, is just a crutch. It's just a crutch for you to lean on. Christianity is not a crutch. It's a stretcher. It's not a crutch, it's a stretcher. Because Christianity says, God, if you do not completely carry me, I have no hope. A crutch says, I've got something else to lean on, or I've got a leg to stand on. A stretcher says, I am absolutely laid out, and I have no way forward without you. I have no hope if you don't completely carry me. And so if you're confronted by your sin, if the Spirit of God is bringing conviction, or if God has brought you a good friend like a Nathan in your life that calls out your sin, God wants you to respond in confession and brokenness over that sin. God doesn't want our sacrifices. He doesn't want our bargains. He's not interested in our speeches. I realize that Psalm 51 is a pretty eloquent prayer, right? It's a pretty beautiful song. But even David knows God is not interested in just the words. God wants the broken heart. There's a story of the prodigal son in the scripture. And I go back to this all the time. And if you don't know the story, there's this young man, goes to his dad, says, I want my inheritance, gets his inheritance, takes it, and goes just absolutely wild, right? So takes it, blows everything, lives this wild life, completely trashes his life, ends up in a spot where he's bankrupt, and he comes to himself, the scripture says, and he's like, man, if I just, if I went home and I was just like a servant, I would live better than this. I wouldn't have to live in the literal pig pen. And so he does, he goes home, and he's, and as he's going home, he's kind of rehearsing this speech, and he's thinking, okay, if I just, I'll say this to my dad, dad, I'm not even worthy to be your son. I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, and he's got this whole kind of like forgiveness speech that he's all riled up, and the scripture says his dad sees him kind of coming over the horizon, 
and he tears down the driveway after his son. And the son starts in on the speech. The dad won't even give it a second. Throws his arms around him, throws his robe around him, kisses him, hugs him, puts his ring on him, and throws an absolute party. And he says, my son, my son, not my servant, my son who was lost is now found. He's home. He's home. And I welcome him with open arms. I think a lot of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, we've kind of made this whole religion around the speech. But the point is that God is not interested in our words. He wants our heart. And we have these speeches like we have to convince him. And, and, and like, well, like we're some kind of lawyer that we can win over God. If God didn't want to forgive you, do you really think you could talk him into it? But, but the, the, all the emphasis on Psalm 51 is on the mercy of God. And David, he, he doesn't try to conjure any interest in, in his sin because your sin is not that interesting. Do, do you understand that? A lot of times we think our sin is interesting, which is why, you know, it, it shows up in, in, in social media or somehow gets kind of promoted in our life, like that our, our sin is really something that needs to kind of be out there. Or maybe that's why we flock together with other people who have the same kind of sin or we wear all of our scars from our sin, like badges and all, 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 of, all of this stuff. But God says, look, your sin's not original. Like the very first sin, I said to people, hey, don't eat out of that tree. What do they do? Eat that tree. I tell you, hey, don't live like that. What do you do? You live like that. Hey, don't be selfish. You're selfish. Don't be greedy. You're greedy. Don't lie. You lie. Don't sleep around. You sleep around. Don't get drunk. You get drunk. He's like, I tell you all these things like I've been telling you from the very beginning. Don't do that. And what do you do? You do it. So there's nothing that you've done that's new under the sun, the scripture says. God's not that interested in your sin because your sin is not that interesting. If you are a follower of Jesus especially, the most interesting part of your story is not what you have done in the past, but what God has done in the past on your behalf. It's not a marvel or unique thing to be broken. The miracles, the repair, or the restoration that's done in the person of Jesus. What I love about the father is that he just wants to see his son or daughter coming over the hill. He, wants, he just wants to, to see them come home. When, when we do speak of our, our, of our sin, we, we really never even fully articulate how bad it is because we don't know. We, we, we say how bad it is, but we really don't even know how bad it is. Um, the, the thing about us is that we, a lot of times we don't even really know what it is that we're talking about. You know, it's like listening to like little kids talk about things. You know, they say funny things because they hear a word there. They hear a word on a TV show or something like that. And you're like, oh, that's funny. That's kind of cute. And that's us a lot of times. We're trying to say things. So the point is, it's not about the words. It's not about the speech. What David is, is trying to drive down to is like, God, I'm not here to give you a bargaining. I'm not here to barter with you. I'm not here to make some elaborate sacrifice or some elaborate speech. I just want to bring my broken heart to you because I know that's what you want. And I, I love this story. I really do. I love this story because in my own life, I have spent sleepless nights rehearsing a speech before God that he didn't need. And I love this story because the sin that I replay over and over and over again in my head, he has separated as far as the east is from the west. He is thrown into the deepest chasm in the deepest ocean and put up a no fishing sign. I love this because he called me home and he throws a party. I, I, I love this because I'm, I, I'm free. I'm truly free to worship him now. And I love this because he loves me. It, it, it's like this. If I, if, I, if I took you to the AMC theater down the road, like the new one that's just got kind of remodeled, that's got like the super high def, there's like 
400 speakers in there, and it's like super loud and super vibrant. And I said, hey, uh, we're going to go to the movie theater, and there is a special feature that's showing. Um, and it is your life. It is everything about your life up to, up to today, up to today, actually. And it's, uh, it's everything that you've ever thought and it's everything that you've ever done. It's everything you've ever said. Uh, it's all the things that you, you thought nobody else ever, ever saw those things. Uh, it's, it's everything. It is every single part of your life. And uh, special screening just for you. And so I take you down there, and uh, you sit in the theater, and you have to watch it. How would that be? And uh, you watch all the scenes that you've been trying to forget about, Right? And all the things that you're like, I can't believe somebody knew that happened. I can't believe somebody saw that. And you have to watch that whole thing. You sit through that. And then I come back in the theater and I say to you, uh, how was that? And you're like, that was pretty brutal. I don't, I don't want to have to go through that again. And I said, well, guess what? You are going to go through that again, uh, except this time we're going to bring all the other people who are in your movie, uh, and they're going to come in and they're going to watch it with you. So... All the ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends, they're going to come in. And uh, all the relatives and family and friends and all the people you ghosted, they're all coming in. You know, everybody that you just kind of blew off, all that kind of stuff. Everybody, they're all coming in. And you're actually going to have to watch it again this time with them. How would that be? Here's what life with God is like. It's like God has watched that movie and he still loves you the same. If you had to watch that movie with everybody else in your life, and they knew all the things you said behind their back, and they knew all the ways that you lied to them, or talked about them, or disregarded them, or just flat out sinned against them, would they still feel that way? But this, this holy, infinite, beautiful, brilliant, God of the universe has seen every scene and his stance towards you is I love you. I love you because that's who I am. That's, God is love. I, I, I've been trying as we kind of working through the life of David to kind of end these talks with giving you something to do but I think that's kind of part of the challenge with this topic is that we put so much into our work and our response, but there is a response here. And if, if God by his spirit and by his kindness is leading you to confess sin and to repent, then now is the time to do that. Now is the time to do that. It could be that you need to go to somebody in the room tonight and there needs to be confession of sin. It could be that you need to talk to myself or, or Shannon or Connor or any of our leaders here tonight there needs to be, a, you need to confess that tonight. Don't wait for the conditions to be better and be like, well, I'll kind of wait for this or maybe I'll set up a coffee meeting here. No, you won't. You'll skip it like you've skipped it this far. If God is by his spirit, by his kindness, is leading you to confession, is leading you to repentance, tonight is the time to do it. Do it now. You don't get clean by pretending. If you just pretend, that's not, that's not how we get better. That's not how we get clean. You get clean by confessing. 
So that's the first kind of takeaway from, from, from this tonight. The second is a response to what David prays in Psalm 51, verse 14 and 15. He says, deliver me from my guilt, O God, O God, my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. People who know God, meaning people who have the confidence that a wayward son has when he believes, if I go home, my father will take me in. So people who know that, um, they sing like this. They sing like this. And, and, I, and I think a lot of times the only thing that God really wants to hear from us, and, uh, instead of us trying to like bargain with him and make promises about how good we're going to be in the future, I think the only thing he really wants to hear from us, from the, those of us who have been forgiven and welcomed home, is simply thank you. Thank you. We don't have anything else to bring. I don't, I don't have a pile of promises. I don't have a pile of good things that I've done. I just have a thank you. I just have a thank you. Um, we're we're going to sing just a few songs right now. The guys are going to close us out. Um, and, and these three songs, these are, these are freedom songs. These are freedom songs. They're, they're songs about freedom coming to God. Coming to God, believing that he's the God of Psalm 51, that, he is the, that he's the God of mercy, He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of love. Believing that. Believing that what the scripture says, if we confess our sins, that confession means I'm going to say the same thing about my sin, God, that you say about it. So as bad as it is that you say it is, I'm going to say that same thing. I'm going to say that same thing about it. If the scripture says if we, if we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's true, He's just, he's right. It's the right thing for him to do to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The the invitation in the scriptures is be in the light as I am in the light. If you are living your life in darkness, that darkness is a prison. You know it. You know it is. You're experiencing that already. In the light is freedom. And you're like, yeah, the light is scary. David knew that. Why do you think David jumped through all those hoops? David knew that. But in the light, there was freedom. When Nathan comes to him and says, you are that man, that was one of the most freeing moments in David's life. And that will be a freeing moment in your life. When we sing these songs, um, we sing them because their content is true. They're saying true things about God. We also sing them because we want, the, we want these things to be true of us. We're gonna sing, the first song we're gonna sing is a song about just, God, here's my heart. And you might not feel like that. That might not be your emotion tonight in the room. But we want to sing that so that God aligns our heart with what is coming out of our mouth. And so I'm going to pray for that right now. The guys are going to come. Um, and I, I, just, I want you to listen to God in the next 15 minutes that we have together. I want you to listen to God about what he's leading you into tonight. Uh, let me pray for us. Father. Um, God, I'm, I'm asking that this next kind of 15 minutes, these three songs we're going to sing, God, this has not just become, <laughs> God, just merely singing. God, in, in your word, you tell us that you actually inhabit the praise of your people. And so, um, God, I am asking for your presence. God, I know you're here because you're everywhere. But God, I'm asking for an awareness and a recognition and a supernatural receptivity of you with us. 
And God, to the person who feels like they are too far gone, they've made too much of a mess, God, that their sin is too great, God, that their anger is too great, that their doubt or their fear is too great, God, I just pray that you would just break right through that, and God, that you would invade in an incredible way, God, this moment, this place, our lives. God, you, by your kindness, lead us to a place where we can stand in the light as you are in the light, God. Confess our sin to one another and to you. And God, in that place, we find freedom, we find mercy, we find forgiveness, and we find love. So God, we lift our voices in faith and in confidence, God, that you are who you say you are. We love you. We commit this time to you. 